Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to Bench Units. My name is Mark. I'm joined by James. How's it going, man? Not too bad. How are you? Good, thank you. And we are joined by our second Warburton in a row, which is apparently, I don't know, we're just like a, a siblings podcast now. We'll have to find the theme of all the siblings we can pull in. We're joined by a guy who I actually did my level two coaching badge at the same time on the same course as this guy. And having watched him parlay his success at the Commonwealth Games into his first professional coaching job and joining us after an upset win over Landil has made me feel like I've not really got my money's worth out of that course by comparison. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Lucas Warburton, thank you for joining us, man. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're making me blush with that intro. <laughs> I thought of that this morning. I was like, I'm sure he was on that course of it. I don't know how many memories you have of it, but I was talking to James about it this morning. I was like, yeah, we were definitely the only people like under 40 and everyone else was just <laughs> like, their, their club was like, hey, we need another person with level two next to their name. Do you mind going and doing this for a weekend? At, at, the, at the beginning, that's how, that's how I started as well, just to get another bit of insurance, just for the insurance. <laughs> yeah, just because it looks good in GCSE, PE. Yeah. No, there's very much a thing of like, listen, if we're going to have someone's dad coaching a club legally, we need them to be a qualified coach, so it goes the other way right. But, God, oh, wheelchair basketball. It's so funny the like, how short it goes from that to like high-level basketball. Like, there's... There's a lot of work in between, but there aren't that many steps, if you know what I mean. Like, you yeah. go one division below the top stuff in wheelchair basketball, and it's like people's dads. Well, I, I was trying to work it out, because I couldn't remember what year it was I did my coaching certificate. But, Lucas, you must have only been about 18 at that point. Well, I remember doing it. You can you could only do the level two when you turned 18. Right, okay. And I did it as soon as I could, so I think I just turned 18, yeah. But. Most kids want to get out and get drinking, but you were like, yo, get me in that football for two weekends in a row and I'll... Yeah. Do my get coaching. me to Northern General. Who's saying he was sober the whole time? <laughs> but yeah, I love them being like, no, you need to be 18 and you being like, don't you know who my brother is? Oh, no, definitely not. Yeah, sorry, what did you say your surname was? Oh, yeah, yeah come on come on, right ahead, sir. Um, well, don't inflate his ego any more than it already is. He doesn't need this anymore. Don't you know, don't you know who my dad is? He's the one... <laughs> Yeah, that's more like it. <laughs> I don't right. think it counts as ego if you're actually just like world class. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Right. Maybe there's a level, but I don't know. But anyway, so we're going to start of, this. We've kind of touched on the how you got into it, Lucas, but we generally ask everybody this question to get the ball rolling. So it's probably no secret on your behalf. But how did you get involved in wheelchair basketball? Uh, well, obviously, like you mentioned with... Um, with Greg, he got invited down to sort mm-hmm. of a little taste of day. And then Josie Tchaikovsky was was at that taste of day. He invited him down. And being the younger brother, I sort of had to get dragged along because I couldn't stay at home. So I was sat in the sports hall um, on the bench. And instead of sitting watching, I was sort of just invited to play in. And 17 years later, here I am. 17 years later. How old were you when you were down at that taste of session? Uh, se- uh, seven. Jesus. So, well, we we feel old. Yeah, <laughs> seventeen. <Me too. laughs> seventeen years. You'd get a lot. You'd get a lot less for some very serious crimes. That's. I know. Yeah. This is by choice. <laughs> you say it's by choice. The the literally you just said the fact you were there was not by choice. Yeah. Early on, no, it wasn't. To be honest, no, it wasn't. 
yeah it's that's that's a really common theme in like a lot of these conversations we have with people where it's like so how did you get involved in basketball and there's like a 50 50 split between i fell in love with it the second i saw it and i was like what am i doing here who are i'm now twisted to be here (laughs) yeah that was it yeah you're just like your mom was working and your dad had to give you a lift or something like (laughs) but you've just mentioned a name which i imagine will come up but um one of the things we wanted to ask you and Finn Tonner actually wrote in to ask the same thing um we wanted to know if about your early influences in wheelchair basketball both as a player but maybe specifically as a coach um as a player and sort of obviously follows into being a coach as well it was early on it was it would have been Josie because if she hadn't have invited me to jump in the chair as an able-bodied kid a disabled sport you don't really think it's a chance to join in, you sort of just leave them to it, and that's fine. And then I sort of not been out of the chair since, like metaphorically. And then more into coaching was probably Nick Howard, who um as Josie after Josie passed, he sort of took over their coaching role at uh, Mavericks, and that was when I was like, 14, 15, I started to get a little bit more of an interest in coaching, and I think he definitely imparted a lot of that early wisdom before I was around the age of 16 that sort of helped me take that next step as both a player and wanting to follow and go into coaching more. Sure. And I think the the interesting years for you must have been, because obviously Greg's been, was with Manchester and then with Oldham and has been abroad for like four or five years now. So I think it's really interesting because I think a lot of kids, especially like you say, younger brother or whatever, who've been dragged to it because their brother was part of it, would probably have called it a day at that point. Um, but you've obviously Greg's moved on and is doing his thing abroad and you've stuck at it was that did that happen just kind of naturally or did you have a sense at that point that you know this you wanted to go somewhere with this in your own right or were you just hanging around because that was kind of your group of friends by then well when I was around 12 or 13 was when I started to sort of give up other sports because I didn't have the time to do more than one so I stuck with wheelchair basketball because at that point, you've spent seven years in it. So you've created a closer group of friends than I had done in a lot of other sports that I didn't really stick with. So at that age, and then as I got older, and around 15 was probably when I started looking at coaching as something maybe it's something I do because knowing I couldn't really get paid to play, but there is a way that I can stay in this sport and potentially do it for a long period of time. So I did my level one at 16. As soon Again, that was as soon as you can do it. Um, because I knew I wanted to get a little bit of experience and doing a little bit of assistant coaching stuff just to sort of learn a little bit and learn from whoever's the way of speaking to people and like in timeouts and things. And then I always, I've always been a bit more of a, the, the thinker in the family. Um, <laughs> Craig's been the sort of person who will try everything, every sport and be good at them all. Yeah. I've always been a bit more methodical and like strategic with things. So coaching would sort of be the natural progression no matter what sport I was in, just happened to be wheelchair basketball. Sure. sure. Uh, sorry, just taking a little step back, you mentioned, Josie, and you mentioned Nick. Do you notice little bits from their coaching in how you like to coach now? Do you notice their influence in sort of day-to-day or in games? A little bit. I think in my mannerisms, mainly with Nick, is that he's a lot more, in terms of the way he speaks to people and his man management, I feel like I've taken a lot from that in terms of, Bit sometimes having the arm around a little bit and making sure off court people players are doing well, like they're happy in their lives. Because I think if you're happy in your personal life, it just allows your basketball to be a little bit more free and 
without worry. And then, and then when things sort of, you have to have be that little bit of extra, a little bit firm. I got it a little bit from Josie and from Dan Johnson. That okay. ability to sort of, when you need to grab things, scruff of the neck and sort of take that charge when you need to. We've made it made it through a lot of episodes of this podcast without ever really having a massive Dan Johnson discussion, but you obviously had a year under him at Oldham last year. What was kind of your, he's obviously years and years of experience, both playing and coaching elite level players. So what's your kind of Dan Johnson takeaway? Do you have, have like a, a session or a, a game that you were in where you were like, oh, this is how this guy does it? Um, I think it was probably Coventry. We played Coventry in the Prem last season. And on the whole, we tried to keep me and Richard Pullen separate. Yeah. But there was a time where we end up together and it worked. And it's the, like, the slowest pick and roll you've seen in your life. The most slow motion pick and roll ever you can ever imagine. <laughs> but a couple of times and then, but because with what Dan's like and he just wants the simple things rather yeah. than anything fancy, you do the simple things well you're in a chance to succeed. And just to stick with that, even though it isn't the flashiest, it isn't the fanciest little bit of offence, just to go with that and sort of have that little bit of a trust in your players is sort of what I've developed a lot from him, like the simple things and then that trust in your team. Sure. Yeah. I hadn't hadn't really thought about it, but you must have felt like, I mean, we, we joked about you being in the game for 17 years at, at the age you know. You must have felt like the baby on that team rolling out there with Dan. Uh, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Felt like I brought the average age down by about 15 years, just in just its own. Um, and it's, it was all, it's a lot of back in my day, we've all, we've all um, yeah. <laughs> so it did make me feel like fresh faced. Sorry, you're, you're old, old enough story. to say that now. Yeah. Say, the old stories about the, um, you know, back when the chairs didn't have anti tips on them, <laughs> it was a man's game and we played without straps. And it's like, yeah, we've moved on from that, from that yeah. stuff with very good reason. Yeah. And if now you ask not... anyone, if you ask anyone from back then, basketball was better back then because, of course, <laughs> things get worse as time goes on and people forget how to do things and things actually go backwards. But yeah, you Definitely. Yeah, it's a little known secret that you play better when you're wasted. So <laughs> I hung over. I remember Oldham had Oldham had the thing of coming over to play us in Belfast, and they always came over the night before, and they always really enjoyed their time in Belfast. And there was one time they didn't, and it was the worst they'd ever played here. I don't think they were used to like not having a sore head when they played us on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I always thought it was weird that they wanted to play us on a Sunday, and then I figured it. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think we kind of all growing up in the sort of. UK wheelchair basketball scene we kind of know the answer to this question but what's been your experience of the sort of infrastructure for coach development in wheelchair basketball in general but I guess your experience will be UK specific um it's sitting on the ground um it's sort of you sort of forgotten about a little bit I feel as a coach which obviously you need the funding into the athletes that's the priority but at the highest level Every team has players who can knock shots down, who know how to run the pick and roll, who know how to do the basics. So at the highest level is where you just need that little bit of guidance, that little bit of call a timeout when things aren't going your way, just to gather things back together and cool heads. Um, and I feel like even if you just look uh, around like the leagues, a lot of like the Spanish league, the German league, the majority of the coaches are from, that, from those countries, yeah. with the exception of a couple from each team. So I think that sort of it is sort of shows that it's the same in most countries in terms of there isn't that many good young coaches coming through. A lot of the coaches at the highest level are players who have played at the highest level 20 years ago and sort of haven't haven't given up, haven't left it. So 
it would be good for some more young coaches to come through. And but yeah. at the minute, I think it's something that's improving, but it's still not not perfect at the minute. Yeah, I don't even think it. I don't even think it's the case that it's all old players. Like if you look around the leagues, it's a lot of able-bodied coaches that didn't. Yeah, the European are not coaching the wheelchair game, and I wonder. Do you find a benefit from having come through wheelchair basketball um, and kind of seeing the development of yourself as a player and then as a coach going step by step versus coaching someone who is very much trying to translate able-bodied basketball into the wheelchair game? Because that's one thing I've spoken to a couple of teammates about. And it's not even a diss on any specific coaches. It's just more a shame that it's a load of transplants from a different sport who are kind of it it almost seems like a step down from able body able bodied basketball to come and coach the top ten best teams in Europe in wheelchair basketball. I don't know if you think if you have any thoughts on that or whether you think actually being a wheelchair basketball coach specifically has helped you in any specific scenarios. I think the sport on the whole would benefit if there were more wheelchair basketball primary focuses because yeah, a lot of the principles are the same, but like the way you run an offense is so different because the fact that in the running game, you can't really stop people. No. Not really. We can stop chairs in our sport. You can't really do that. People can co- go to whichever area of the court you want to go to. So it makes things like running a motion offense so different versus yeah. wheelchair versus AB. And I think some coaches who come from able bodied basketball and don't understand wheelchair basketball, they try and sort of shoehorn their able bodied basketball knowledge without any taking into account just different disabilities, different classifications, and the fact the sport is actually different. Yeah. I think defense is a lot harder than everybody basketball. Yeah, for you sure. Can't you can't shirts. stop anyone. No. So, um, you try and play an offensive system in, in, in wheelchair basketball, and you realize it's 10 times harder because the defense is better. So it can just feel a little bit... Things I think simple things are missed because they're trying to force able-bodied principles into the wheelchair game that don't really fit. Yeah. I think so, that's... Sorry, I think that's an experience I've had where you mentioned like different disabilities and stuff like I've had coaches previously. I'm a big fan of my current coach. Uh, I would also say that if I didn't mean it, but I'm a big fan of my current <laughs> coach. I actually am. Um, but I've same, had previous coaches. Same way who, told us she was a big fan of Lucas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll get to that. No, I'm joking. Um, no, I've had experiences of coaches being like, why can't we do this? But they're asking certain players to do something that they'd be a different classification if they could yeah. do it. Like, they'd be like, why can't this guy get there? And you're like, oh, because they have a disease that means, they have a disease that means they get fatigued easily. Or why can't this person stop this player because they're a one-pointer and they're playing a four or five? Like, you can't just, add, it's like individual responsibility on defense is like limited by a certain amount of classification. And I've had yeah. coaches who don't understand that. And it's like, hey, you're getting, you're getting nowhere without that because you're just, banging your head off a wall, asking someone to stop someone that they can't when you have five different ways to adjust if you realize that you need to. But yeah, yeah I think that's a massive part of it. Like just, why can't we, hey, we can't move sideways. Like we can't bend our knees, keep our back straight and slide. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think like, we, we obviously started talking about the UK. We've gone a little bit like global with this element of the conversation. But I think one of the most like instructive things is you watch that junior world's final between Turkey and Japan. It's like all of the Turkish coaches are able-bodied basketball guys. And as a result, all the Turkish bigs can shoot. And then Japan seemingly never have anybody who's an able-bodied transplant and they have the best chair skills in the world at the junior level. And it's like, 
that's coming from somewhere. Like, yeah. And I, I think it's a little bit, that's a really good example of that in countries, in teams and countries that a lot of the coaches are from able body basketball, the bigs sort of get treated like, like gold. Yeah. Like they just treat them like able bodied players because most of them almost are. Most of the church, they can do the same things able-bodied <laughs> basketball players can do. Some of them in the past have been able-bodied. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Someone have some have been proven to be that recently. Yeah. So they get treated like gold because you can do almost everything they get asked to do, yeah. and then the lows get treated like a, a moving pick. Yeah. And if you, for me, I think if you can have five scorers on your on your team, then good offense beats good defense. So if you can have, eventually you'll find an open player who can knock a shot down. Whereas if you play like some teams who rely only on two or three bigs, all you have to do is stop them and teams aren't willing to pass the ball inside because they don't trust the lows and they're not um, trained to the same level that the bigs are. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's 100% right. Um, I mean, this is probably a good segue because I think you're um, we're talking about this kind of team balance and whatever. We're going to get to the fact that you guys effectively roll out kind of three, four mids and Jim, who's maybe the most mobile and dependable one in the world at the moment. But we're going to do a little bit of kind of a, not a career retrospect because you're in your early 20s and you're just a child, but we're going to talk about how you got (laughs) a child. Um, So obviously for people who don't know you, kind of your first big step on the scene was last summer where you were the assistant coach for the 3X3, as I resent calling it. Um. Oh, you're 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 waving your finger. We were both head coaches. Don't okay. actually, don't that don't take me that step back like that. <laughs> okay, okay. We will upgrade you to the head coach in a sport that doesn't allow for coaching and doesn't need it. Great. Congratulations. Yeah, that was the dream. That, yeah, that's perfect. The, that's the equivalent of being a voice actor in a film where your character has no lines. Voice uh, actor in a silent movie. I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So. This was maybe the first time anyone who follows the game really saw you doing your thing, at most of it behind the scenes, admittedly. But do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of getting your first big break, playing a different style of basketball in the three-on-three stuff to maybe what you've been used to? And I guess how that then transitioned into the opportunity you've had with Rhinos, if that was, you know, dependent on that or if you had that in the pipeline beforehand? Um, Well, initially it was a little bit daunting because we watch a little bit of 3x3 and you realize how different it is yeah. in some aspects but then and we were just talking about able body basketball and i basically said it's the, the coming from that is not good but yeah. for our prep we spent a lot of time watching the running game 3x3 because it's the only real footage we have of it at a high level um and i think if anything the principles of able body to wheelchair 3x3 translate more than five and five yeah um, the idea of that because not being able to three. stop someone. <laughs> yeah, the idea of that quick clear behind the three-point line, quick tra- transition, the little tactical about if you go to overtime, it's first to two, that sort of, those little tactical things translate quite well. And then as I spent more time watching it and coaching it, you realised it was almost the same, but just really focused and really specific about the things you focus on. But the principles of things you focus that are important in 3x3, Think if you take them to five and five, it can make especially defensively. If you engage, yeah, just about engaging chairs early, being that communication, the switch because you don't have the same ability to cover and rotate. So you have to be physical with your chair contact, rotate and heavy with your communication. Um, and then I think that was really good for me as a coach as well because 
because you can't coach in games, it means you focus heavily on the prep. So you make sure your team are happy with the system that you want to run and the way the opposition play. But then also give them that bit of freedom in terms of when they make the subs, whether they change the offense a little bit and giving that your players the creative freedom a little bit to do what they want and what they feel. Because as a rest of you as a young coach in my first season in Germany, I can't pretend to know it all because I don't. So these players have been playing as long as I have. And yeah. so they need to have their voice heard. And just because it's different to my opinion doesn't mean it's any less valid. I think developing that trust in my team has sort of it's come really strong. I've developed that really well from the Commonwealth Games. And, and then on the back of that, actually the way I got the offer here was... Uh, Maka, right, right. Uh, Adam McCullum, yep. he was going to come here a few years ago and then because of COVID and a few other things, he didn't. So when they contacted him this summer, he refer- he basically said, oh, try Lucas because he's coaching the Commonwealth Games. He's young, he's passionate, basically. Blowing smoke up my heart. Blowing smoke up <laughs> where the sun doesn't shine. Um, yeah, there you go. Uh, Absolute professional. <laughs> so, so much better then, than Greg. And then within 10 days, it was video call, meeting, making sure we're on the same page. And that was that was it. Yeah. Video call. Can you count to 14? Trick question. It's 14 and a half. Trick question. You've got a female, four <laughs> yeah. or five. Uh, you're in. Congratulations. <laughs> so 10 days is not a huge span of time. Um you obviously, I think Rhinos had kind of turned over the majority of their team and rolled them over from last year with a couple of exceptions. How familiar were you with the guys that were here already and, you know, the people who were potentially coming in and joining? Did you have a lot of time within that span to, you know, scouting your your own potential players is a, is a weird one, but did you have to go into that video call and be like, yeah, I think we can run this offense or this offense and we can play these yeah. lines? Not quite. It was more about general principle ideas of the yeah. sport and like beliefs. But like looking when I was sent the team list, luckily the majority of players that I played internationally. So I have I had a level of knowing what their game is and their strengths. Um there was a couple that I had to watch from where they were last season just to get an idea of the best player they play and what I maybe want to channel that from them. But players like like Juice was a great example of I'd seen a player. Um, at Tokyo and knew a lot enough about her game. Jim, of course. Um, and then the majority of like Haish, even I know a lot about his game from a little bit of time in Cologne and seeing him with the national team. Chris Huber, obviously playing lots of minutes for Germany. So the majority of them, I had an idea of coming in anyway. So it was, makes your job a little bit easier when you have an idea of 60%, 70% of the team. Yeah. So you mentioned... Um, that they sort of asked you about your beliefs about basketball and you also mentioned Juice there. So I'm going to tie these two things together quite nicely. Juice actually wrote in and asked, how would you describe your coaching philosophy? So they phone you up and they go, Lucas, what do you believe in? Um, what, what's what's your answer? Um, offensively is like the team first. So play within a system that whichever the best look is, that is the shot. We don't settle for our four and a half taking a shot because he doesn't want to, she doesn't trust our laws. It's that extra, that mentality of the extra pass. And like I said earlier, like for me, good offense beats good defense. So if you get one pick, you should be able, if you move the ball quick enough, you should be able to get a good look somewhere. So it's just that bit of trust in your teammates 
and shoot with like, play with confidence and with a little bit of freedom. And then on so and then on the other end, it's just about the fundamentals defensively. Is I think if you do the the basics well on defense, you can have a good possession. There's a bit of chair contact, rotate with effort, and you communicate early enough so you know where we're rotating to, and that's it. I don't think defense has to be that complicated, really, on the whole. Obviously, you need to tailor it to individual teams and different systems they play, but on the whole, why overcomplicate things that can be kept to quite simple? Sure. No, completely. I think it, it's like one of the unspoken secrets. Of, we like touched on it when we were recording yesterday. We were talking about Gran Canaria for the last couple of years, and it's like, hey, offenses are generally really, really simple, and it's just a case of like teams generally will get shots if they have the talent to like you say hit that one pick and create the look they will get a shot but if the offense is generally pretty simple all you have to do is like play the numbers and try and force the ball to the the least optimal option for them so yeah i think it it like it almost sounds like it's a negative on the sport to be like defense doesn't have to be that hard but it's like hey if you do it same with offense, right? If you do it simply, like you were saying with Dan Johnson, if you do the simple stuff right, your defense probably stands to benefit just as much as your offense does, I think. Definitely. I think the thing about defense is like hard, but not complicated. Like you have to work very hard to do things right. And you have to be like really disciplined and um, takes a lot of work, but it's it's not rocket science. Like it's the thing of like, you can nearly always defend well. Like you might have days where your offense isn't going or you're not making shots or whatever, but you can probably be in the right place on time and work hard to be there and talk about it. But And that's when it sort of becomes more of a mental game, defensively especially, than physical, because if you don't put the if you don't work hard, that's when you give up easy stuff rather than uh trying to at least contest. Yeah. We say that you allowed Landell seventy two points, man. You gotta gotta pick the defense. I know, but everybody, everybody but Tommy shot less than fifty percent almost. So yeah. nothing much couldn't do much more. Landell are pretty good. I, I, think I, didn't that 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 I, I didn't expect you to rise to that quite as sharply as you did. I'm glad glad <laughs> I found the line. Uh, I, I bite quite easily. <laughs> Greggy. Um, no, I'm joking. <laughs> well um, it's the Warburton. It's yeah, it runs, the Warburton it runs in the blood. You biting and then laughing about it just made me be like, Craig. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, one thing I'm always, inter- I'm always interested in when someone gets to a new team, you said like you knew quite a bit about a lot of the players that were there. Is there anyone that surprised you? Were you like two weeks in being like, oh my God, I had no idea this guy could do this or I had no idea this player had this in the bag? Or uh, Chris Huber was the biggest one. Right, right. Because... I think in the in the way he's played, like at Landale and for the German team, German national team, he does a lot of the stuff nobody notices. So when you're just watching the game as a fan, you don't see the little grunt work he does all the time. But then when you first two weeks of training and you see the number of shots he creates for everybody else and his ability to finish with that little scoop with both hands, um, it just makes him such a strong player in his position because... People don't want to triple onto a one because it means leaving a big open. But when he's going to hit 70% of his layups, even even trailed, he's going to hit a lot of his layups with that little finger roll, then it makes that defense. He just creates an extra shot somewhere else. So Chris was one that really sort of surprised me in a good way. Like I knew he was decent, but how I was really impressed in those first couple of weeks of training. I think that the telltale sign with guys like that is always, like you obviously get to see them every day when you're coaching or whatever, but 
I think you generally find like lows specifically, and you're like, why does this guy's team win every scrimmage? Like he he has like maybe two or four points in it. Like say we're scrimmaging to twenty, he's like not dominating the thing, but his team never loses. Like regardless of how we shift the lineups around, how does this happen? And that's like I think that happens a lot with him. And you've obviously got Jim on the other side who is you know kind of the typical one pointer and then some, but I think. In terms of your guys' lows, you obviously you're very mid heavy as we've kind of touched on a little bit, but do you think with your midpointers you've kind of found your right rotation of and how to use those guys? Because you've got a fair few threes and like you got Louis who's a two five at this point. Do you think you've kind of found the balance fitting them all in and around? Um I think originally I had. Yeah. And then since Uor and Khan have arrived, obviously makes our rotation slightly different because we have a bit more size now. Yeah. Like, we don't have any true centre. We're having, having been able to play essentially four mids and our four five is a little bit bigger. It sort of can help cover a little bit for the fact we lack size. Um, so now it's just about, we've only really had a month with them here. So that's not a very long time to sort of get them on board to where everybody else has been, get them caught up to where we've been all season. So a little bit still going through those Teething problems to an extent, uh, of finding the right combinations and um, on paper a unit works in training. It should work in training, and it doesn't for whatever reason. Um, so it's just about finding that right balance to get everybody a little bit playing in their strengths. Even if some players have to play their secondary role, it's just that little bit of sacrifice, a little bit needed, to sort of get the best out of everybody. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What were your coming into the season? What were your expectations did you have specific goals in terms of third in the league fourth in the league or whatever um and how does that compare to how it's going right now um individually like for me as a coach it was just feel like we've put in a good shift we've got we put in a good show and then as a team it is like playoffs was realistic was what we thought let's go for playoffs and then that's been a good season um that color losing to cologne before christmas had the potential to throw this banner into the works um, especially even though we beat Munsterland both times, it had the potential because Munsterland beat Cologne both times. So those two games we've made up. We know, dude. We talk about these games every week. Um, I know. So those two <laughs> games we made up versus Munsterland, maybe we lose them against Cologne. Obviously, getting the result on the weekend against Landil helps that. Um, but it's we just want to make sure if top four is where we were in for and then. We think going to the playoffs, if we can take at least one off whoever we play in the crossover, just take one get one game of the three, and then that would have been preseason. Is what the was the thought. Maybe things have changed a little bit as the season goes on, but um, I'm gonna say if you get Landil in the crossover, you're not sneaking up on him this time. <laughs> no, no I think um, to be honest, I think in some ways we feel like Landil, Turinga are a better scoring team because they just. Scott, this player saw free and they just shoot with so much confidence, especially from the three point line. And then Landil are a little bit more structured. Yeah. So, for different ways, both teams are unbelievably t- tough. Um, mm-hmm. So, either is a tough matchup. So, um, I haven't played them obviously both twice this season. They'll have a good sense of us. And we're looking at other games they've played to have a good sense of them as well. Yeah. Uh, one of the other questions Juice wrote in was, what's been your favourite and your also like your lowest part of the season? You mentioned uh, losing to Cologne and beating Landil 
in one sentence. So I imagine <laughs> there are no other real candidates. Are um, yeah, I think the Cologne game was, yeah, because I think it was more the context of the way we lost. We weren't actually, offensively, we, we sort of, as a group, we weren't great. Sort of in that game, Juice carried us a little bit offensively. So we know we can score with the best teams in the league. Uh, we're confident as a team that if we all are on firing, that we are a really strong scoring team. So it felt like it wasn't a true representation of us. And then all of our game plan, all of our game prep, from watching them all previous season, every shot we wanted them to take because of the percentages of throughout earlier in the season, they knocked down. So when you do everything on paper right, you give them the shots that they took all season and missed and chopped poorly from and struggled from, and then they hit them, it feels like, what's the point at times? Like, I've done everything I thought was right. I don't know what else I can do. Yeah. And then, yeah, probably the Landil game. Obviously, it may not have been it before this weekend, but um, we sort of just went in with no pressure. So no expectations of that game. So to go in and just play free and shoot as well as we did and move the ball really well. And defensively, we were, I was happy. We give up 72, but in terms of the system, we forced tough shots. Tommy just went off. Um, so we were really happy with what we what we forced from them. And so, yeah, that was definitely the high of the season so far. We're going to hit, hit a couple more quick ones before we go on to talk about the Landil game specifically. But we'll touch on these now because you mentioned kind of Uger and Khan coming over recently. So they've obviously arrived, I think, end of January, start of February, which late in the season by by any standards. So in terms of getting those guys in and incorporated, is it really just a case of kind of see what you've got with them this year and then hope they can be with you the whole of next season? Or are you not looking that far ahead? We're not got- even looking that far ahead. I think if they come a little bit earlier, maybe. But now we just have to focus on get because we're in the run up to the playoffs we just need to make sure we can get them on the same page enough to so it doesn't ruin the system that we've had all year yeah. I think Ua uh, slots in quite well because of his player style yeah. um, so the way he plays fits in quite well Khan is an unbelievable shooter and scorer of the ball um, and it's, it's just about obviously coming from a different league and a different basketball culture in terms of like playing for the Turkish national team and things their reads are a little bit different so they would do something that isn't necessarily wrong, but the other three or four on court and reading yeah. the same way because the way we've played our season is in the system and they're playing in a different way, different way, especially defensively, just about getting them to sort of get on the same page with, with the way we rotate, um, leaving the percentage shots rather than trying to rotate to everybody, those sort of little, yeah. things, little things, really. I think the, the cross-cultural thing is like a real... Not barrier there, but it is. It does have to be factored in. Like I know we've talked about it with like Papi joining Bilbao, and it's like the number of times there like should be a defensive rotation, and because he's an Italian four, he's like sitting in the key and like pointing at somebody like, "Hey, go defend that guy." And it's like this is just how we do it around here. Um, Even just things as simple as if we're engaging at the three point line in like a high line, they start at the sidelines and force in, and I like to use the sidelines as an extra defender and force out. And that little thing is just. If you do that in a game, you wouldn't expect that to be a problem or yeah. be something different. You would just think, let's just start high and it's not so complicated. But there's those little things that... Yeah. Do you think yeah, I, did, I did find it so interesting watching because obviously you played Hanover last week when those guys were about a week into being in Wiesbaden and obviously that's a tough time for that game to come. But there was a point mid-fourth quarter 
in this game where uh, Toprak had the ball sort of elbow extended on the three-point line. He got a pick from low and a pick from high at the same time and came off it. And I was like, ah, turkey. <laughs> He'll be fine. <laughs> that isn't even something I even mentioned, but apart No, no, it's just well, like you guys just went into like like being very sort of free positionally all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. I know you've kind of said you like to play like that, but generally kind of haven't this season in large parts of um, specific games, but it was cool. like there were times where it'd be like, these two guys play pick and roll, and then all of a sudden you're going strong side. Then all of a sudden Jim's spotted up on the weak side. But yeah, no, just when it got to the point where like he was going like Turkish high pointer running the show for a while, I was like, ah, I think I think great. Given the point about the defense, Lucas, that's probably a Turkish thing as well because they're like trying to force everything into middle like, into oh, the Jim, bigs. Yeah, Jim's normally back there. We'll be fine. But you yeah, do not. We don't have, have a champ. <laughs> not many um, people do. We'll talk, we mentioned the the Hanover game. Uh, we'll use this to transition into talking about Landil, but obviously you guys played them a little bit over a week ago now. That's kind of the big one for you guys in terms of third, fourth, and determining your fate in terms of the you know what your crossover matchup and stuff might be. You guys started out pretty well and let go of the rope. I think to your point about incorporating the new guys, there was a little bit of like chemistry stuff there that you were still figuring out, but. Do you, did you come away from the Hanover game thinking that you know you'd learn what you needed to and you had some stuff to build on ready for the Landil game? I know you said you went into the Landil game feeling zero pressure, so it's probably a good time to incorporate those lessons. Um, I think it was just we watch obviously in the heat of the moment after the game, you just react emotionally, don't you? You can't to think logically and with any sense of like perspective. Um, so when I watched it back the next day, the Hanover game, the number of good looks we created was actually a lot. We played the similar, we got the similar quality looks as we did against Landil, and we just struggled to knock them down. Um, like if we said before that game, if we keep Hanover to sixty, we'd say we win that game. Um, and then just the fact we didn't shoot that great, if I didn't, what the focus was to take from that Hanover game to not go in looking at the result and more look at the fact we actually played some really good offense. Mm-hmm. Defensively, a lot of times we denied the mismatches where we wanted to, and then Jan's Gans would hit a silly shot. I was um, going to say, you, you fell victim to the Jan Gans back from the dead tour. <laughs> and there was times where we he actually played really the dead. He's been good all year. <laughs> he wouldn't even get a look, and then he just like is unbelievably quick release. He's like he's not even caught the ball, and he's already shot it. I'm like, what is going on here? Like it's off, and it's Jan Gans revenge bit. game. And then when you're not hitting shots, you feel a little bit powerless, don't you? <laughs> Yeah. But I think there's also a thing in that, and it's like I hate that it feeds into my like sarcastic, hey, just make shots, that's all that matters thing. But like if you shoot 61% last week, you probably win. If you don't shoot 61% this week, you might lose. Like 100%. that's and so much of it. Because the way, especially without uh without Mariska, they play a lot bigger. You've always they played almost two four five to the home well, two forwards for the whole game. Yeah. And then Sadler and Sean aren't tiny. So when they're in as well, it's like we sort of we we couldn't we can't attack the paint because Tom McHugh can almost touch the ring from his chair. So like yeah. as soon as you get anywhere near the key, he just arrives in his present. Like so, yeah, and so can Jan Sadler from the two spot as well, which is the issue. Oh <laughs> yeah, I know. Like if, even with when Haller's in as a two, he's so big. Oh, that's what I mean. So, Sorry, yeah, he's I got my Jan's mixed up. And he's sort of tough to can't go inside because of their size, and then it makes you it's tough. So last question on that in terms of getting your le- like lessons learned and you know, hey, we actually, there's some positives to take away from this. 
you've obviously got a massive English speaking contingent within your team, you know, um, Juice, Chase, Jim, those guys, Heist is English, is so obviously pretty good, but you've now got, you know, Moji coming in who's Iranian, and you've got the two Turkish guys come in. I don't know what any of those guys' English is like, but is the is the like language issues that you have to work around as coach, or have you found you're able to communicate on, with like on bas- the whole, not too bad. Generally, the basketball terms are the same in most languages. Yeah. Then also, Moji speaks English and German and Turkish. Right. Okay. Oh, wow. So that helps. If he, still, if he doesn't understand me, Chris will say it to him in German, or if Pan and Ua can't understand me, he will tell them in Turkish. Hey, so that that's why you signed that guy. Man. What that, I want to know is have you ever said something in your thick northern accent that has had to go from you to Jim to Juice to Chase for people <laughs> to understand it in English? Because uh, I love the idea of the accents getting slightly less severe. As like you uh, Chinese whispers, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if um, say that anymore. Sometimes I would just use a northern phrase and yeah. they wouldn't understand it. Or I'd use an English basketball phrase that sure. the two North Americans wouldn't understand. So, like, I call it high line, but... Juice and chairs call it teacup. Oh. So it was like, oh, what's high line? I said, well, you start a line high. It's not that complicated. And then Juice is like, oh, it's like, oh, you mean teacup? I'm like, I've never also, if you, what if, call it. Also, if you like cornered someone who didn't know anything about wheelchair basketball and you were like, one of these terms is British and one of these terms is American and one of them was high line and the, the other one was teacup. They'd be like, I'll bet my house that teacup is British. Um, and then sometimes Jim loses any translation of what I say as well. I'm, I'm going to um, say, when you say it's like Chinese whispers, does it have to go from you to Jim to Juice to Chase and then like you're running Sometimes if I say something to Jim and Juice is like, what did he say? And he'll explain it in like non-English terms, just like generic terms. Um, or I'll say things because Juice is a little bit deaf as well. So I'll say things to her when they're shooting a pre-pro and she'll look at me with like, I've got about three heads. She'll come over to the sideline and I'll say it again and she still will be really vacant. And then it'll take me like getting rid of all my accent just for her to understand a word that I've just said. <laughs> have you have you had to do it yet where to get through to Juice, you have to say it to Moji who then gives it <laughs> a very thick Iranian accent? <laughs> no, not quite that bad. To be honest, Chris is probably the one that understands me the most. <laughs> English is his second language and he gets my accent the most so that's weird but I think yeah. spending time with Ian at Landale will probably help that as well oh yeah oh, God, yeah. Accent of Ian, so. if he can understand him he can understand anybody yeah yes. right speaking of Landale should we get to the game oh what a, what a professional yes so um, talking about being professional as a professional coach what does a game week look like for you and what does it look like for the team leading up to a game like Landale so usually either Sunday or Monday, I will watch the previous game or the next, the most the most relative game, relevant game of the team we play next. Mm-hmm. So if it was a close one against a tough team or he was struggled against the team below, one of those sort of games where you can get a little bit of a feel of what they do well and what they struggle with. So I watch that either Sunday or Monday. So then we talk about that to start Monday and put some basic defensive focuses in sort of just to think about for the week. So, like, when we scrimmage, that's what we want to be doing defensively. Sure. Tuesday, we train just the sort of the same. We, again, focus on the defensive side. Uh, on the whole, we're quite confident our offence will take care of itself um, if we knock down shots. So, less of a focus on that and more on defensive, uh, defensively. And then a nice, bright and early 6.30am shooting session Wednesday morning. 
but then the rest of the day off Wednesday. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And then Thursdays we have our video session where we go over a couple of clips from a couple of our games. Sometimes we'll look over some of our previous game if if we need to, if it's relevant. If we've just played uh, SNR, SN, maybe we don't do that. But if we struggled against like against the previous game after Cologne, we watched some of the Cologne game. Um, and then Thursday is where we really focus on uh, putting the units in that we think are going to be um, impactful, whether it's our starters unit, whether it's a pressing unit, whichever team we're playing and whatever we think we need. And then with the defensive focuses again in the, the scrimmage. We do a lot of, especially now we finally got 10 regularly. Yeah. Early in the season, we didn't have 10 Love that it. often. So we couldn't Love scrimmage. It. So we did a lot of 3v3v3 or we just do like fundamental, like uh, principle drills, like the defensive principles. Whereas in now we're just getting a lot of reps in, which is quite nice to be able to do. Yeah. Um, and then Friday, we have the court from five. So we shoot for an hour. And then we just do scrimmaging, shooting, scrimmaging, shooting for an hour and a half. And then we wrap it up with just little simple stuff. And then we don't want to go too hard. And we just like to play a little bit relaxed on the Friday session. Because if you go too heavy the day before or too focused on specific drills, people's minds get lost a little bit. So just sort of relaxed a little bit that Friday session. When when you say you've been short of ten guys to scrimmage with, I can't believe you didn't take your chair out there, man. You... I had I didn't take mine, but I was jumping in and out as spur one. I jumped I, in a few times, but I there were times you... where I was more hindrance than help. Oh, I in my chair, you... sat really low. <laughs> so I'm not trained for about six months. So I came in completely out of shape, um, and I had to go on the dive, which is something I never used to do as a player. Mm. So I was like, "This is all right. I'm out with depth here. Let me get back to coaching. I can do that." Um, so if we look at this the Landil game specifically you obviously kept your your pattern for how your week works but had you kind of keyed in on something uh, something offensive and something defensive that you wanted to work on in that week and take into the game with you I mean defensively there's obviously not a huge amount that you can game plan for Landil other than being like we need to try and not let Tommy have 45, but, you know, you've obviously go in there with a list of what you're willing to give up versus what you'd prefer to keep out of them. And, you know, same for your own offense. Yeah, it was just, of course, like, uh, I know such a strong team in terms of depth. Like, if their second five would could probably could arguably make the playoffs. Yeah. And, and it's, if, it is, if it was its own team. So the list of players you can allow to shoot is quite short. But even if they're going to shoot 40% or 45 or 50, it's better than giving the same shot to someone who's going to shoot 55 or 60. So it's against the team, and Turinga sort of fall into that same bracket. It's more about not not giving getting a great, not giving making them shoot a really bad shot, but the best for us, the best of a bad bunch. Which ones do we want the most? Um, so you try and deny that mid-range area, of course, especially from Tommy and the way he's been shooting recently. Um and then you just got to rotate hard. Uh, and that's sort of, again, like I mentioned earlier, it sounds simple, but it has to be. Otherwise, if you overcomplicate things, they just pick you apart. To that point, when Tommy hit those two threes in the first quarter, were you kind of like, oh, here it comes? Um, I had a, a little thought across my mind. It was like, do I call a timeout? And I looked at the score and thought, well, we're down seven. I mean, we've not actually done anything wrong. He's just hit two threes. So without that, well, they hit three threes because Gaz had one as well. Yeah. So without that, we're at one. So yeah. you look at that and think that isn't that bad. Of, we're not in a bad situation. Back on our timeout, 
there's nothing constructive to say. We're defense. We're actually defense. I'm happy with how we're playing defensively, and we're creating good looks on the offensive end. So, if we just extend a little bit higher, we're in a good spot. So, I don't want to overcomplicate things by calling a timeout, and then we go away from what was working offensively. Um, just tr- have that little bit of patience and trust. And luckily, they went on a little bit of a run, and we got it back to down three uh, to end the quarter. Sure. I think that's something that annoys a lot of players when it's like say you commit an error that like obviously you don't want to let Tommy get going from the three point line like Tommy gets an open three you don't need a timeout to be like hey yeah I know don't worry about it like <laughs> I have a real thing now where like it I don't know maybe it's just the older I've gotten the more I'm like oh for god's sake but like if I make a mistake that is very obvious I'm like hey you don't you don't and know. I think as well a lot of coaches call timeouts for the sake of it yeah, yeah. They went, yeah, they hit a couple of threes and they went up by seven. But the momentum hadn't really... They hadn't took control. They just hit a couple of threes. The momentum was still relatively balanced. We didn't feel like we were being pushed off the court or anything like that. So yeah. for me, that's what you, timeouts need to be about. If anything is either fundamentally wrong or just to stop that momentum. Yeah. Sometimes teams call a timeout just to stop the clock. They're not doing anything with any real purpose. Just because it looks good if you call a timeout and hit your board out and you do a little bit of drawing. But if you've got nothing <laughs> constructive or meaningful to say maybe need your board yeah. if it's something genuine but yeah. if you're not doing anything wrong don't yeah. call a timeout just because they've hit a couple of tough shots yeah it's like while your team is inbounding under your own basket can you go hey we need to on extend the- another five feet like yeah. i'm not that's not sort of thing i like to do on the fly but with half of my team you don't get it <laughs> so i tell juice i Heish is okay with it but i should gym and usually then i tell them to and they just tell the rest yeah, get the message around. Yeah, yeah, it, it'd be funny. It's just like you just find that they happen to play on the side nearest to you on, um, on defense all the time every game just because you need them to pass messages on. <laughs> Nothing to do with matchups. Just, left all the time. Yeah, you need a translator end. on the left wing constantly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Well, um, we obviously mentioned Tommy, but the I guess the big story from the game is that. This was the Ua Toprak, I've arrived game. Um, he had struggled a little bit against Hanover shooting-wise, and he came out in this one. I, I watched this game again this morning, and it's like he checked Tommy Bomer on the first possession, and then I think turned in an assist, like a three-on-two assist for a layup, and I was like, oh, man, he's up for this one. Um, what was, for you, was there any difference in kind of his approach coming into this one versus what had happened with Hanover, or do you think he just got going early and it kind um, of snowballed? I think, well, I know he told me he was nervous before the Hanover game because we uh, we had a large Turkish uh, contingent come in to watch because we yeah. put our gate money towards the earthquake fund. So we oh, had a yeah. large uh, yeah, well, Turkish well community who were organising this fund come yeah. and watch. Um, and it was his first game. He'd only been here for two weeks. He'd not played for since last season. So, like, he told me he was a little bit nervous. And then, not in our home gym, where we'd never played before. Um, so, and it was it was full. So, I think he was a little bit playing with, I think he was playing within himself a little bit. And then, this week he came in, he was shooting really well in training all week. Something he'd sort of struggled with, I think, is because he was still settling in. Not shot as well the previous weeks. And then, this week and last week, he's been shooting really well in training. Um and he just like I think playing him with Jim worked quite well because we have the methodical pick and roll side then with Deuce and Heish. And then 
that little bit of freedom with the other three to be able to sort of go where they want, give him a little bit of freedom to either make a little cross break and then attack or run the pick and roll with Chase or come through the middle and just give us that little bit of freedom, create that creativity to express themselves. And then I also think it's more difficult to predict when you've got someone who can shoot like he can and play like he can, um, playing that little bit of everywhere. Because you can't just say, right, you play down this side and stop him. If you match it up, you have to switch and then that creates picking opportunities. And um, I think he had, was it seven assists he had as well? Yeah. yeah. Uh, which was a good sign of the fact that he didn't just shoot whatever it was, 15 or 17 shots and on catch and shoots. The baby, the ball would swing to him from juice and then as they jump, we run a little bit and roll and he moves the ball well. So if it's a sort of player whose role is to only shoot the ball, then you don't mind if he gets no assist. But with his role to see he also scored 34 on seven assists yeah. is to me more important because it means he took the right shots at the right time and also moved the ball at the right time. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think if you contrast it to like your first game where you played Landil before the Turkish guys had arrived, um, a lot of your guys' like last ditch offense was Juice posting up against like Yannick or Simon, and it's like eh, you'll take it, but that's probably not going to win you the game with that strategy. But I thought the biggest like telltale of who were being out there and being on the ball was the number of open shots that Juice got, which hadn't been there in the previous game. So is that kind of what you hoped would happen by incorporating him like that? There'd be a big knock-on effect to make everyone else's life easier? Well, yeah, in that first game, they smothered all of our perimeter game really well. Um, so we just struggled to create anything in that first game. I think we scored 45 in that game, yeah. um, which is probably our lowest part. And then the Hanover game is next. <laughs> um, and then I that's what the plan was last week against Hanover was I've put Juice with Jim on that weak side catch and shoot roll and she could get a lot of open looks and she did so I was happy with that but then even if the ball starts down Juice's side and we swing it and it gets swung back it just when you've got someone who can like play a mate like he can when he's in, in, the, in, the, in that sort of mood there's not really a shot you can give up defensively any shot is a good shot for us, like Juice open, Tyus driving to the layup or Chase or Jim open from the middle is a good look for us anywhere. So I think just that extra little bit of size and that extra little bit of threat was what we needed in that game. Yeah. Um, one of the things I kind of mentioned earlier, and I'm, I'll bring it back up again because I've got it written down here, um, it kind of links into, well, hopefully it links into what you said about top rack there, but you guys played with a lot of positional flexibility which you kind of had on and off throughout the season but more so in this game I think if tell me like you can just tell me if you think I'm wrong no, I, agree. No, um, I agree but does that come from the fact that you have a guy like Top Rack with the ball in his hands who can go everywhere and does want to be in a couple of different spots at once or was this something you wanted to see or was it organic and the things I've written down here is also your starters playing, shooting 33, 33 from 50 helps as does playing four big and a quick one. But um, I think I've always liked the idea of it, but I think you maybe get the best out of in the in the time we've had in the past. And that's what I've struggled with a little bit as a coach is the different units, how you can play like that and still get the best out of everybody. Yeah. Because some players do the best and it's the same thing. So they both want to play the same role. And that's when you get that little bit of a that clash is like, I want to go down on this side and then the player who also like another player who also likes to go down that side, maybe feels a little bit lost. Um, so just finding that balance of getting everybody the best out of everybody was sort of something 
especially early in the season, it was quite difficult. But then with the way Chase is shooting at the minute, the way Jim is shooting at the minute, it gives us the ability to play a little bit of flexibility because whether Jim and Chase are together and no matter who's on the outside, on that side, on a catch and shoot, I'm happy. Chase in the middle, a little bit of size to either drive or to just play that catch and shoot role in the middle. He's shooting really well. Jim can play both on that dive for Ua or he can play through the middle in that catch and shoot or behind Chase. So it just gives the fact that we, I feel like now we have, like we have a lot of versatility. We've all, we have all season, but I feel like players' secondary roles have clashed a little bit as well. So yeah. finding that balance has, has been tough and still tough at the minute because they've been here three weeks, but slowly it's clicking together, I think. So on that note, while we're talking about units, um, you went to the Euro Cup that was in Bilbao a couple of weeks back, which the two explanations for that are either that you're a James McSorley super fan and you wanted to go and cheer him on, or every team at that tournament seemingly was going like four bigs or mids around a female low. Um, is that something that, do you look at kind of your guys stacking up of size and, you know, perimeter skill? And do you look at that and be like, oh man, if we could get, you know, a female one pointer in here who'd play as negative half a point, you know, we look at that and be like, oh, that could really unlock it for us. Is that anything that would be on the cards for future iterations? Uh, potentially, but then it's also about, I don't want, if, I, if we assign a female one, I wouldn't want to sign one that is sort of just a body in a chair, which right. is what some teams do. They yeah, just yeah. sign somebody to to play that minus a half. I would like, it's going to be somebody who I feel like, like so we've got five scorers, which sure. is, they're not, there's few and far between. Um, and also because there's a few players at that one who like have some true size, who a little bit players who maybe for the future also just play style, even if it's not that specific player, just to see how teams like the Man- Manchester Revs are a, te- a great example, undersized and played against a lot of teams with a lot of size yeah. and competed in pretty much every game. Um, so to see them play against the likes of Galatasaray, who have they play that a few, couple of laws and then a few bigs, see how they deal with that at the highest level and a little bit of back going back to Dan Johnson is Owls previously and now the Manchester Revolution have historically always overperformed at Champions Cups. Yeah, yeah. With the team they've had, they should never have got the results that they had. So listen, man. You can't say that. He doesn't even listen. Yeah, he won't know. He won't know. <laughs> um so like just to get that little bit of uh insight, because talking about it is one thing, but then seeing it, you learn a lot more from watching. Yeah. Um, and it was a nice week. It's going to be a nice weekend with a bit of sun. So yeah. didn't want to go to Vienna and get covered in snow. <laughs> we, we a were, bit of nice weather. And we were going to ask you why you chose Bilbao over driving to watch your brother play. <laughs> I, not all weekend, so I think I made the right call. Fair yeah, I'm going to connect the dots here. And we we said, do you need a do you guys need a female one? And you went straight to Manchester Rev. So I'm going to throw out the Sophie Caragill to Ryan River Rhinos. Not, not, not sure we can afford it to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we, I have, we have this conversation that has happened, but Lake Como is quite enticing place to go yeah. and go to Italy. So yeah, not sure, not sure it, it levels up, does it really? Fair play. Fair, it fair does play. not. I've heard, I've heard Wiesbaden isn't actually as terrible as in my mind it seems. No, it's nice. Uh, it's a nice. Yeah, city. I've heard it's lovely. 
you just drank the rest of Germany, get snow in the winter and we only play in the winter. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like a just a different type of nice. I think people go to like Spain, Italy, France, and you're like, ah, yes, this is lovely. And then Germany's just slightly different, but also lovely. But it's this is the nice city, yeah. I like it. Yeah. I'm happy. Apart from having to wear a coat all the time. <laughs> Sorry, you left Manchester for this, so it's fine. I'm gonna Don't say you're a northerner, man. You shouldn't be wearing a coat at any point. We're meant it's, to be strong. It's, yeah, it's drier than Manchester as well. That's true. It doesn't matter as much. Oh, yeah. That's the stuff. Okay. Last couple of points on the Landil game. Um, you guys only made the one sub where you brought Chris and Moji in, and you went kind of the three bigs, two ones. Was that something that you guys had like had in the locker and you knew when you were going to bust it out, or was that just... We'll roll this out and see if it give, if it buys us, you know. Well, it was caster fell off. Is that what it was? Oh, yeah, wow. his, his front left caster had come and screwed and fell off, so we needed to make a sub. Okay. <laughs> I felt like the way he played, trying to just go like for like, we would have tried to play that same way, and the way he was shooting, we couldn't have gone and played that same way. So I felt like if we make a change, score, bring an extra bit of size in, um, and just play a little bit of a different way and. Even though we that that unit was still plus four, yeah. So yeah. to go, go on play for eight minutes when we had a unit that was going really well, and it, I said to it, said in the changing room after at that point in the game, I wasn't planning on making that change. Yeah. It was a forced change, but to have a unit that wasn't almost wasn't expecting to come in, um, and then it, that too, and we're still plus four against one of the best teams in the league between them and Turinga is yeah. a really big credit to the two of them. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I just didn't, I thought, if we're going to do anything, go for a change. And then maybe if they go a little bit bigger, maybe then we mix it up and go back to our other unit and go more mobile with like Louis in instead. Yep. Um, but I thought if you go and try and do the same thing with different players, it, you try and play the same way. And if they're not shooting as well, you just, you look, you can't, you stuck then, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, um, I guess off the back of that point, Kind of one thing that's notable from this game, I guess, is uh, like we say, Kamali and Huber played seven ish minutes each, and then uh, Khan, who's obviously one of your your big signings, and Louis Hardouin, who's been around, you know, for a couple of years. These are established guys, and you know, very, um, very like well respected. They've been a part of the club and whatever, and for their various national teams, it's a big call for you as a young you know, first-time head coach to leave some of these guys on the bench to the extent that you did. And I think there's a lot of coaches who would have felt like they had to play those guys. And I, I think, quite honest, I don't know how it went down as a decision with them, but I think you really made a, the right tough call in this sense. And is that, but is it something me, you have to talk to them about? Or is it is there an understanding that, you know, you do what it takes to win the game? For me, it's sort of the two sort of side, tight parts of that. And the first part is that, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah. So many coaches change because they have another unit. They just change to get it in. And then that unit will be minus five. Then you go back to the first unit anyway, and that, that second unit doesn't come back in. <laughs> so that's not better because they've come in, yeah. been the reason the lead has been lost, and then they're out again. So then you feel worse then because you played and then you're the reason that you're not playing again. Yeah. Um, and I just think, I feel like subs for the sake of subs is a waste of time. I only see the point of subs for a tactical reason. Either if you think somebody's going to bring something a little bit different, you want to play a different way, or even in the same system, just a different look, like a different, a bit more size or a little bit more mobility. I think subs for the sake of subs, I think are a little bit pointless. Yeah. And 
something I have said this season a lot, um, all throughout the season, is that we're a professional club playing at the highest level. If you don't play, you need to be willing to sacrifice yourself for the team. And yeah, we may lose and I maybe make the wrong call, but I'm only doing what I feel is right as the coach. And the Landale game is another example. Maybe Hanover, I should have mixed it up a little bit more quickly. But then Landale, I kept it and it worked. So I feel like a little bit, I've asked my players a lot to sort of sacrifice themselves if they have to. Like if I'm willing, if I have, if I feel like I can't make that change, I need you a little bit to sort of swallow that and take that as as the fact that I'm trying to make the best decision for the team. Um, and I've, the other thing is that I've always instilled the willingness for them to have an opinion, as long as it's in the right way. So you can come to training, you can ask why or give your opinion, as long as you're not causing that sort of bit of trouble or because, like I said, you're willing, it's fine to ask. And I will explain, and you might disagree, but whether you like it or not, at the end of the day, that's the role of a coach is to make the decisions whether you agree with it, whether you agree with them or not. And maybe that makes me the villain at times, but it's only for the good benefit of the team, even if we lose. Like, it's not personal; it's never personal. It's just what I'm looking at. I don't see a change. Maybe I won't see a change that would be better or the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's ve- very, very well put, and. It's the kind of thing that I think most coaches would be like, oh, all my, you know, my players all buy in and they do what's best. Like, there's a bunch of guys who definitely would be, you know, like you say, would be sore the following day or would be, you know, not feeling it at all. But you say it makes you the villain, but I think you'll take being the villain in those circumstances if you pull the win out, right? And that's part of my job is to be the villain. Like, (laughs) as much as I want to have a good relationship with my players and I want to, like, know what's going on in their personal lives because, People aren't happy in their lives. They don't want to come to training and then the effort is low. So if there's anything I can help in that aspect, then yeah. But then when it comes to minutes and all athletes to an extent have a bit of ego, don't they? Yeah, so, you have to. So if exactly. it comes to in the feelings a little bit, then I would rather do that and deal with you a bit of a whinge than make it to, just for the sake of it to keep everybody happy and yeah. feel like it detriments us. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're not... Yeah, you're not making a decision that's any sort of personal indictment on a certain player. You're just going, and it's not even, I think this is going to help us, and I think this won't. It's like, I think this will tip the scales in our direction. And and if this is working, I yeah. always think changes when something isn't, like when you're in a tie game with Landell, you would have took that after after a half. Yeah, yeah. Then it feels like you changed that just for the sake of it. This is pre-game, nobody expected us to win. No. So if you're in a tie game at half time, yeah. you feel like you're at your ceiling, don't you? So yeah. why would we change it? Because then this unit is working, clearly. Yeah, that's a good point. If you can get it to where it's tight with three minutes to go, and then... And that yeah, is what we said before the game, then. is that if we're in touching distance in the dying minutes, win or lose, we're happy. Well, so you, you can't you then change it when you're in touching Yeah, you distance. weren't really, were you? I was going to say you weren't within <laughs> touching distance. <laughs> that, yeah, that was... But that pre-game was thought, if we're in touching distance, we're happy. Yeah. So Missed. why would you then change it if you're in touch? Well, if you got to the point where you're happy, why then change it? I love the mystery third option of like just beating them by more than you thought. <laughs> but yeah. All right. Um, I think we only have one more listener question, do we? Yeah, we, we built most of them into the episode. You were, When James reads you this one out, you won't be surprised that we weren't able to find a spot to work this into the episode. Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> okay, so this question, uh, this would be fun. I love like asking people when they get dumb questions who they think they've come from. Uh, what do you think of German traffic laws? 
Oh, I know. I know. There's only two people this has come from. Okay, Lucas. <laughs> Lucas, before you say anything further, would you like to just not respond to um, this is funny? <laughs> as your friend? No, um, I like that they don't have points on your license. That's all I'll say. Really? Just fines. It's not points on your license. Yeah, hey, that's decent. Man, my life would be a lot easier if if I lived. That's got to be someone from from the rhinos. Who uh, do you think yes? It um, might be a Marvin. Sorry. It might be a Marvin, potentially. Yeah, I was thinking Marvin or um, <laughs> Taisha or Jim, one of those three. No, 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 Marvin. <laughs> Is it Marvin? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's the end of the questions <laughs> and the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for your time, Lucas. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, anytime, man. We'll have you back when you beat Landil again. Oh, that's, okay, that's, no, that's, that's great. That. That's great. If they have the revenge game and beat you by thirty in the playoffs, you have to promise <laughs> to come back. <laughs> that's a deal. If they I'll beat be, you by uh, more than twenty, you're coming Instagram, back. Be. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks, man, and thanks everyone for listening. Hope you enjoyed it, and yes, we will see you soon. Peace out. Bye.